Welcome to Digital Yom, a podcast about living a symbolic life in a technological age. Man cannot stand a meaningless life. I'm Jason Smith, Jungian analyst and author of Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life. And in this episode, we look at the value of the symbol and the transformative function that it holds for our psychological lives. It's the human soul. That's the very treasure. Symbols are always grounded in the unconscious archetype, but their manifest forms are molded by the ideas acquired by the conscious mind. The archetypes are the numinous structural elements of the psyche and possess a certain autonomy and specific energy which enables them to attract out of the conscious mind those contents which are best suited to themselves. The symbols act as transformers, their function being to convert libido from a lower into a higher form. This function is so important that feeling accords it the highest value. This quote comes from Jung's book titled Symbols of Transformation. And I wanted to take a closer look at it here because it builds on the understanding of the archetype that we explored in the last episode, Encountering the Archetype, episode two from season two. There we discussed the nature of the archetype as a field of psychic energy that in itself is unknowable, but which creates powerful effects in the experiences of both our inner and our outer lives. And in what follows here, we're going to move from the archetype to the symbol, noting how these two psychological experiences are related and seeing how the symbol functions to channel archetypal energies into our lives in meaningful, creative, and life-giving ways. In that one quote, Jung gives us a snapshot of the workings of the psyche, of a process that is central to the experience of the symbolic life, and which lends it an often healing quality. And there are three important themes that are worth highlighting in what he says here. And they are these. One, the interplay of the unconscious and the conscious mind. Two, the action of the archetypal energy in relation to this meeting of conscious and unconscious. And three, the specific value of the symbol 
and the work that it performs in the psyche. And just before we continue, I, I think it's important to point out that these things are not just something that are of theoretical interest to specialists in Jungian psychology. These theories give us ways to understand common and sometimes troubling experiences, ways that can transform our perception of them and their role in our lives. So this is not about learning theory, right? It's about learning to see. How we see shapes our experience as much as, if not more than, what we see. When we have an adequate lens through which we look at psychological events, then experiences that may have seemed depleting or draining become vitalizing and meaningful. And this is the transformative power of the symbol. Now, Jung touches on the first of the three themes that I mentioned when he says, symbols are grounded in the unconscious archetype, but their manifest forms are molded by the ideas acquired by the conscious mind. In other words, symbols include both unconscious and conscious psychological material. And what this means, of course, is that a symbol is not just a made-up image. It's not just an arbitrary construction of the conscious mind. It is primarily an expression of an unconscious dynamic, the unknowable archetype that we discussed in the previous episode. But this presents something of a dilemma for us today. Because we don't really know how to take the unconscious seriously. That is, we don't know how to experience it as something real, something autonomous that happens to us outside of our choosing and our conscious control. Furthermore, the unconscious communicates, so to speak, through the language of image and emotion. That is, it resonates with the non-rational, and doesn't fit neatly into our preference for rational concepts. And because we don't know how to relate to the unconscious, we tend to meet it first in symptomatic form. Painful emotions, oppressive moods, disturbing fantasies, and even interpersonal conflicts, all of which we take literally. And so, to free ourselves from this state of affairs, it's necessary to have some way of recognizing and connecting to the archetypal energy that lies at the root of these symptoms. Now, to be able to do this, it's helpful to understand the way that the archetype works in the psyche. And this is the second point that Jung makes. The archetypes he writes, are the numinous structural elements of the psyche and possess a certain autonomy and specific energy which enables them to attract out of the conscious mind those contents 
which are best suited to themselves. Now, we explored most of this in the last episode, so I, I won't linger on it here. But I do want to recall the image from last time of the magnetic field that is invisible except for the effect that it has on iron filings, which it attracts and arranges according to the pattern of the field. This is an apt image for the action of the archetype, and Jung more or less repeats it here. But what the archetype attracts, he says, are those specific contents of consciousness that best express it. So, for example, a state of psychological inertia might appear in a dream as the image of being caught in traffic. The image of traffic comes from our conscious experience, pointing us to a stuckness of which we're unconscious. And it's this bridging of conscious and unconscious that allows the particular nature of the specific unconscious archetype to be recognized, and that makes possible our taking up a conscious relationship to it. And it's important to emphasize that it's the archetype that acts. The archetype attracts the contents of consciousness. We do not pick and choose them. It makes use of those ideas, experiences, memories, emotions, and images that are most like it and are most adequate to give expression to it. And one category of contents attracted by the archetype are just those symptomatic expressions that I mentioned earlier. For even these, it turns out, are a kind of disclosure of the underlying unconscious dynamism. From the Jungian point of view, our symptoms can be understood as distorted attempts to meet a psychological need. For Jung, their attempts to cure the kind of psychological imbalance that results when crucial aspects of our inner lives are neglected or suppressed. He writes about such symptoms that they are an attempt of the self-regulating psychic system to restore the balance, in no way different from the function of dreams, only rather more forceful and drastic. In a sense, with this comparison to the function of dreams, Jung is suggesting that symptoms are symbols in disguise. So again, we could use our example of psychological inertia. If we don't recognize that this is an inner state of stuckness, a failure to tend to our own psychological growth, we might find ourselves, for instance, projecting it into our relationships, blaming our partner for stifling us, or lamenting that things just aren't fun anymore. But with the symbol of being stuck in traffic, we might be able to see that it's our vehicle that is stuck. 
that we are in the driver's seat and that we are blocked somehow from getting where we need to be going. And this is what Jung means when he says that symbols act as transformers, their function being to convert libido from a lower into a higher form. And the word libido here does not mean sexual appetite, but rather it's a technical term for psychic energy in general, an energy that can be channeled into many different expressions, practical, creative, imaginal, relational, and more. The key point, though, is that the symbol helps us to free ourselves from the symptomatic level of experience. Symbols enable us to see more deeply into things so that what feels disorganized becomes organized. What feels meaningless takes on meaning. In this way, psychic energy is converted, as Jung says, from a lower into a higher form. And so a major task of a psychologically mature life, which is to say, of the symbolic life, is to learn to see through the surface presentation to the underlying dynamic. That is, our task is to learn to see symbolically, to develop what Jung calls a symbolic attitude, which is the capacity to discern the meaningfulness of things and events, even when it seems hidden. And just before we go further in this discussion of symbols and the symbolic attitude, I want to bring in a story that I think can help us to reflect on some of these ideas. This is a fragment from an Indian tale found in the Mahabharata, which is also told in many other variations, and I've adapted it here from one of these retellings. The story concerns a king named Dushyanta, who, while out hunting, wanders into a secluded hermitage and meets a beautiful maiden named Shakuntala. The two fall in love at first sight and very soon after get married. The king gives Shakuntala a ring before leaving her at the hermitage to return to the business of his kingdom, where she will join him at a later time. Now, Shakuntala, deep in one of her reveries back in the hermitage after Dushyanta had left, had failed to greet an irascible sage, Durvasa, who had straight away cursed her. May your beloved forget you, he had shouted. Shakuntala had implored the old man's pardon on bended knees, and he had at last relented, saying that Dushyanta would remember her on seeing her ring. Soon the time approached when she was to make the journey to be reunited with the king. When she arrived at the palace, however, Dushyanta did not remember her or that they had ever been married. 
Shakuntala searched frantically for her ring, but she had dropped it accidentally in a pond while bathing and now could not find it anywhere. In despair, she said to Dishyanta, Have you forgotten me entirely? But the king would not receive her and sent her away in tears. Soon afterward, a fisherman found Shakuntala's ring in the innards of a carp. Being a simple man, he took the ring to the king. On seeing it, Dushyanta's memory revived. He then bitterly regretted what he had done to Shakuntala. We are amphibious creatures says the religious writer Evelyn Underhill. Our life, she continues, moves upon two levels at once, the natural and the spiritual. The key to the puzzle of man lies in the fact that he is the meeting point of various stages of reality. All his difficulties, she says, and all his triumphs, are grounded in this. The Jungian analyst M. Esther Harding, one of the first prominent American analysts, makes a similar statement from the psychological perspective. She notes that there's an urge in human nature to move from simply expressing what she calls the crude instinctual forces of life to the meaning-making activity of culture and civilization. With the coming of consciousness, she writes, cultural and psychological values began to compete with the purely biological aims of unconscious functioning. For Jung, the symbol is that which channels the natural and instinctual forces of life into meaningful, spiritual, and cultural forms that transforms these energies from a lower to a higher form. And we are transformed along with these energies, which, of course, dwell within us. We are no longer merely driven by our appetites, but drawn by our better angels. And one way in which these two aspects of our humanness appear is portrayed in our story in the figures of Dushyanta and Shakuntala. Dushyanta can be understood as an image for both men and women of our consciousness, our ego personality. As a king, he represents our ruling worldview. But this is an ego that is still subject to those instinctual forces, as represented by his engagement in hunting and his eagerness to be about the business of his kingdom, even if that means leaving his new bride behind. Shakuntala, on the other hand, raised in a secluded hermitage, is an image, again applicable to both men and women, of the inner life, 
still hidden from full involvement in the world, that is, still unknown, still unconscious. And it's important to note that the development of meaning is not simply in the move from unconsciousness to consciousness, right? Meaning is found in the wholeness of unconscious and conscious together. Dushyanta and Shakuntala need each other. It's when both unconscious and conscious are held together in union with each other that meaning emerges. Remember that the symbol, which is the organ of meaning, includes both unconscious and conscious psychological material. And this is represented in the story by the ring that Dushyanta gives to Shakuntala, and that is the symbol of their marriage, of their union. And so the ring is a kind of symbol of a symbol, we could say. That is, it's an image of that function that holds together the inner world and the outer world, the conscious and the unconscious, the ego and the soul. A symbol, as I write in my book, is a function of relationship between our human consciousness and that which is symbolized. In other words, between consciousness and the unconscious archetypal reality. And taking this image just a step further, we could say that just as a ring in a marriage reminds one of one's commitment to that marriage, so the symbol requires our commitment to hold the two poles of our psychological existence together. It requires us to remember the wholeness of our being. And this remembering is a work. It's a discipline. But it's a discipline of learning to see beyond the surface of things and into their depths. And this is the takeaway here. This learning to see into the depths is what I spoke of before as the development of a symbolic attitude. It's a bringing of imagination to our experiences, learning to discover the archetypal stories that our personal symptoms are desperately trying to tell. And this work also requires commitment because it takes time and patience and we never get it perfect once and for all. But the good news is that we don't have to. In the story, the symbol of wholeness, the ring, gets lost. It slips off in the pond, which means it sinks back down into the unconscious. And with this lost wholeness, Dushyanta forgets his bride the image of his inner life. And we too are like this, right? We're always forgetting our inner lives. 
We're always letting our wholeness slip back into the unconscious. And then we have to do the hard work of remembering once again. And even if we are devoted and disciplined in our attention to the inner life, to the practice of the symbolic life, as long as we are human, we will not stop forgetting. But what is crucial is that we do not let this make us stop remembering. We need to remember as well the fisherman of the story, the one who simply and humbly drops his line down into the depths and patiently brings up again what went missing. As the poet and writer Kathleen Rain says, Strangest of all is the ease with which the vision is lost. Consciousness contracts. We forget over and over again until recollection is stirred by some icon of that beauty. Then we remember and wonder why we ever forgot. Until next time. You'll find information in the show notes for all the sources used in this week's episode, as well as links to connect with me on social media. Let's make this a conversation. If you have any comments or questions about anything you heard in this episode, or that you'd like me to address in a future episode, send them to me on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, if you want a deeper dive into the kind of material explored on this podcast, please check out my book, Religious But Not Religious, Living a Symbolic Life, available from Chiron Publications. Thanks for listening, and take good care.